How are you? I'm good. Can you hear me? Are I can hear you just fine. You just fine. <laughs> What's that? No. I can hear you just fine, too. <laughs> hey, um, I have uh, I have a special uh, special surprise for you. Oh no! You got your soundboard working? Oh, don't ruin the surprise. Ah! Bloop, 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 bloop. Hold on, hold on. Try. I got my soundboard working. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you? Is there anything else that you've been doing in the last two weeks other than this? Like, I saw you. <laughs> But you're, no. you're on your computer, and I thought maybe this is what you've been working on. So I have I have literally been working on this, um, like for about the last four minutes, um, just to make sure that it was all working. Um, but no, but what it was was a lot of back and forth with tech support, uh, which is mostly just me sending something and waiting for them, and then and then them waiting for me to check it out and then send it back to them. Um, but yeah, it just turned out that I just needed to deselect uh, all of my audio inputs in the one part of the app, and then configure everything else correctly in the other part of the other app, and then uh, it's all working. That's amazing. And, uh, and, and now you're able to do lots of fun things. Yeah. So, and, and I didn't, uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pay for either app until I was sure that they would work. And so, uh, you know, so now, um, this, uh, this free podcast that we're doing for people, uh, as a hobby project, you know, well, it's like a hobby, right? I figure it's like a hobby. I'm going to invest some money into my hobby and, uh, yeah, so I bought, I bought some software for my hobby. That's awesome. <laughs> Good stuff, and it works, and it's uh, it, now we're now we're a drive time show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we can do we can do all sorts of we can do all sorts of wacky stuff. Morning, yeah, morning. Wait, drive wait, time. Ben, Ben, look out, look out, duck. Oh, oh. <laughs> the empire's here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, this is so cool. And now I'm going to have to do this, right? Okay. For the next, I mean, the next four podcasts are really just you and I talking and then playing things on a soundboard. Um, and that'll be, then, then we'll get over it. Uh, but this, that's super cool. <laughs> oh, and the most, the most important thing is if I'm ever recording, um, and I don't have, uh, my actual, uh, my actual bell, I have Whoa. a little bike bell. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's not as powerful as. <laughs> the real, ooh, that was awesome. The real thing, the real deal. Yeah, and so there's uh, this comes with about it looks like about twenty five uh, twenty five different uh, sound effects, and of course you can add more and customize them and stuff like that. So, yeah. oh my gosh, that's cool. Very cool. Good job. Um, I've I've put zero into uh, <laughs> my hobby, the podcast. Um, I, I other than I've you know we we've been talking. Um, uh, we always like to talk about where we are, and I'm. Uh, in my office on campus, and I have done a really good job today cleaning out my office, making it so there's not much around, so I don't have a lot of distractions, and I've adjusted my blinds so I don't have uh, just uh, like this piercing sun right into my right into my eye. And I did that just really um, so I could have focus uh, for the podcast. So I'm just modifying my environment. It's good. It's good to have. It's good to have focus. It's good to clean your office. Um, yeah, these are, it, it these is, are all good things. It is. It's kind of nice to just like uh, not have a lot of stuff around, and uh, I still have to. I I think I've, I've I've texted you a picture of this. I have a um, a little. I, I think it's what, what's uh, known as a cafe table, a little round table mm -hmm. that I, that I sit with two chairs when I meet with people. That is not right next to my um, my computer desk, and I have to drag this over 
beside my um, the desk that my computer and my uh, display monitor sit on. So uh, as when I type, it doesn't shake the microphone um, and it's on. So so I have to I have a little bit of a modification for that. But also in front of me right now are um, four different coffee mugs that none of them have been washed and they have you know the coffee dregs in the bottom um, and um, a uh, Pyrex. Um, uh, um, the measuring cup that I use to heat up water for my, um, AeroPress. Well, you know, it's, uh, so, I, I also accumulate coffee cups in my, in my office office, but in my home office, since I have a dishwasher downstairs, I actually don't have any problem with accumulating dirty mugs because I just take them down and then uh, wash them. But it's, it's a, it's a big problem at work because I got to walk down the hallway and rinse them out. Yeah. Well, I'm not, have you, have you ever done this where, um, you, it seems like you might be a little neater than, than me. Have you ever been to a situation where you've gone to grab a mug from your desk or from somewhere in your office that clearly had something in it for a long time because then there was not only just the dregs of coffee, but there was maybe some mold as well growing on top of that. Does that happen to you? Uh, not recently. The only, the only mug that I have in my office that is probably a, a real hazard that I need to get rid of. It's a mug. Uh, that I kept some uh, batteries in, and the batteries leaked, and I threw the Ooh. batteries away. Uh, but there is some crusty salt stuff uh, that's that's probably crystallized battery acid um, in the bottom of that mug, which which would not be a Don't good mug. To, yeah, would not be a good mug to drink something out of. Yeah. Well, this is mug safety talk, <laughs> uh, and I think I've, we're we're really uh, doing our duty. Don't drink uh, battery acid mug mug stuff. Right, right, and and buy a soundboard app. <laughs> yeah, buy a soundboard app. Um, so I so we saw each other uh, in person last week. Um, in in we'll talk. I'll talk. We'll talk about that after in, in a little bit. Um, we this is the second recording that we've done today. Um, we recorded a podcast with uh, Barbara Van Renter Rentingeram Rentingeram. <laughs> I may have not pronounced Barbara's last name very well. I'm not good at pronunciations. We've established that in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so we recorded a podcast for Food Safety Magazine, and it was cool. But this is, as you pointed out at the end of that recording, really the first time that we've tried to do a what, what's known in the football world as a <laughs> two a day, right? Or or in baseball as a doubleheader. A doubleheader. It is. Yeah. Is that a hat uh, trick? Is it the same as a hat trick? Or is that no, different? It's, it's a Cordy Howe hat trick. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're, uh, I'm not really sure, uh, what to, what to do. Uh, we're going to talk. <laughs> well, I, for, well, it would, would have been a little weird. I, so, we, so we should also tell people that the, um, so we recorded it, as you said, we recorded an episode of, uh, the food safety magazine podcast, which is called food safety matters, um, which is kind of a pun, right? Like, cause food safety matters and also it's food safety matters. Well, it matters. Um, yeah. but, uh, We've been told that that's going to air uh, during their first April time slot, and so watch for that. We'll certainly uh, we'll certainly promote that here as well. Um, but the one thing that we we could have done, I suppose, during their podcast is done listener feedback from our podcast, and we did talk about listener feedback on that podcast. But it would have been a little weird for us to give listener feedback from for our listeners to our podcast on that other podcast. That's true. <laughs> We we need to do it here. Yes, this, this would be the place where we should do it. But if we get feedback on the Food Safety Matters podcast, then we're going to have to go back on to that podcast to do feedback. It's an endless cycle. <laughs> it's just it's just feedback all the way down. <laughs> oh, feedback all the way down. Um, 
Hey, so um, I was going to tell you something that's not not related to to feedback. Oh, oh. So um, you and I saw each other last week. Uh, I've been training. I've been running. Right. Like mm-hmm. you, I, I don't know if you, you noticed my svelte, uh, physique. Um, uh, but I, I've been, um, uh, training for this 200 mile race that we talked a little bit about. Um, and, uh, I'm, uh, I, my update for you is I'm developing a little bit of a wear and tear injury on my knee. Uh-oh. Um, yeah. So I'm like right now, uh, um, rolling, um, uh, a ball underneath my foot, which is to strengthen something on the outside of my leg, which will in turn strengthen the inside of my knee. Ah, well, yeah. you know, I am, I am not training for any events, but I don't know if we've talked about this. I certainly talked about this, um, uh, to someone, probably my, my lovely wife. Um, so I back, uh, uh, 10 years ago when I was training to go to Philmont with the Boy Scouts, I developed a condition called plantar fasciitis. Have we talked uh, about this? No, but I'm, I'm familiar with this thing. Yeah. So, uh, part of, uh, the treatment for that, uh, was to, t- is to take a, a, water bottle and freeze it and then roll that water bottle under the bottom of your foot. And so I, and so, and so to, oh. and I have, cause I've been kind of doing a good job with on the treadmill and the, the walking situation, um, and, and hitting, well, on the days when I'm at home and working from home, uh, or I can get any time, any treadmill time at all, I am uh, hitting 10,000 steps a day. And then often on the work from home days, I get 15 or 20,000 steps a day with dog walks and, and treadmill time. But it has caused an aggravation of my of my plantar fasciitis in my left uh, foot. So it's annoying. Uh, and, and I'm trying to do more stretching, but it's, it's, not, it's not going away. What seems to help it go away is to not walk. But of course, I don't want to do that. So yeah. So are you on? You got a you got a water bottle right now? I don't. Just, I don't. Oh. I was thinking that would be kind of fun to do a podcast where we're both rolling random objects I, under our feet, but uh, without but no. even planning it, right? Yeah, like yeah. with that, that would have been a little bit a, a little bit creepy. I think uh, had that happened. Okay, well it's uh, it's good. Uh, good to know. I have not tried the. Um, I, I did have some plantar fasciitis mm. uh, a couple of years ago, but it, it seemed to go away with better shoes. Uh, for running. Um, and, um, yeah. So anyway, I've got a little, my, my knee, I played hockey last night and, um, Gunga Lagunga, you know, the, the, I really food safety talks, uh, favorite hockey team. Yes. Um, uh, we won our, our game 11 to three last night. Um, and I played forward, which I don't often do. And it was a little, little more, little different type of skating, a little more intense skating and my knees, uh, yeah, give me a little, not trouble, but there's a, a twinge is that, I don't know if that's even a word, but there's, I could just feel something. So I'm rolling away here. Well, just to, to wrap up the, uh, the aging, um, uh, male talk podcast or the plantar fasciitis talk podcast. I, um, when I developed the plantar fasciitis, I, I got some inserts, um, some, some orthotics, uh, which I have worn religiously since, since I got them. Um, I don't think they're wearing out cause they're, they're plastic and they're just, they're molded. So I think that they're retaining their shape. Um, I did relatively recently changed shoes, but I, since getting the diagnosis, I have kept, um, always getting, uh, good trail shoes, or trail running shoes, which are I don't really need because I don't do tr- trail or running anymore, but uh, but which do have good support, um, and so uh, that has seems that plus the orthotics um, in those shoes or dress shoes if I'm wearing them seems to seems to have helped. But whatever's whatever's going on, it's uh, I don't know. I need probably need to go see the podiatrist or or again do some stretching or or something. 
Well, hopefully both of our feet are doing better soon. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you want to you want to jump into some feedback? Is there was there something else uh, you wanted to talk about before we got uh, all food safety? Yeah, well, there's a lot there's a lot of feedback, so uh, I think I've I think I've flagged all of it. So let's maybe we can start with um, uh, feedback from uh, Bill F, who says uh, please share all uh, details freely. He says I chuckled at the comments in episode 147 about pork on your fork, and I wondered if you guys were familiar with the band Southern Culture on the Skids. A great surf billy band based in North Carolina. I am not. You might be. Um, and one of their tunes is uh, Too Much Pork for Just One Fork. And we, we will link uh, to uh, Too Much Pork for Just One Fork um, in the show notes. And so thanks to Bill F. for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I was not familiar with this uh, with this band. Um, but they uh, thanks to Bill F. because I would go watch these guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is like this is my kind of that's my kind of jam. Um, and, uh, too much pork for one, too much pork for one fork is a great, great title. So thanks Bill F. Yes. Um, all right. Next bit of uh, feedback is from uh, Deep Crimson. Uh, let's see. Uh, as always, uh, Deep Crimson has a, a very, uh, long and in-depth, uh, uh, feedback, which comes in multiple parts. Um, let's see. I, I, sometimes I highlight stuff, uh, here to help me, but I did not do that. Um, I'm looking for the question or the, the key, key comment. Um, so yeah, I I think, I, I think the, the key comment here, okay, I'm going to, I'll, I'll jump in here to, to help out. Um, so, uh, th- this goes back to one of the conversations that we were having with, uh, last, last week with, or two weeks ago with deep crimson. And, um, uh, she mentioned something about, um, uh, Pete Snyder's, uh, process of thawing on the counter and, uh, something that, that, uh, deep crimson says is equalization. So she mm-hmm. says what, what I cook, I've always been mindful of time and temperature. One thing that bugs me is the current internal auditor seems to be writing her own food code when she cites as a critical problem the food might be at higher than 41 degrees Fahrenheit, though lower than 70 degrees, while sitting on the bench or on a rack. My view is that matters. Uh, what matters here is the fact that food is being prepared and or in, in the cooking process um, or using time temperature control for safety food. Um, uh, hot, cold holding. Therefore, it's okay to, for instance, let chicken breast sit on the rack, marinate, etc., for a while. Time being dependent uh, on ambient temperature, under control to allow internal temperatures to rise beyond 41F and not reach 70 degrees. Um, and you know, she, she goes on to to talk a little bit more about uh, about that. But I want to I want to hit on this, and I agree a lot with Deep Crimson here. And I think one of the things that uh, I'm constantly in awe of is the shift or move in environmental health from uh, a, a checklist and thresholds that are defined in the in, in the food code in some areas that are not always defined for safety reasons to a risk-based approach to say okay what's actually happening here what what is the process and what's going to happen after this to determine whether that food is in fact risky and I see, I see postings 
in lots of other states. You know, one, one of the things that we do in Barf Blog is every day we go out and see, um, you know, what's going on in the news of food safety. And invariably, there's something almost every day about restaurant inspections. And someone will get cited for having, for instance, raw chicken um, sitting above 41 degrees. And what Deep Crimson is talking about is what I think is happening a lot of time is is that, yes, it's it's above 41. It'll be there for maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes as something else is happening prior to being cooked. It's not – there's a difference between um, uh, raw chicken sitting out um, on a – you know, on, on the um, – on the table, on the prep table, or on a bench, for um, 16 hours at 58 degrees or 72 degrees, but having it raised to 58 degrees as part of a marination process, where then I'm going to go ahead and cook it um, directly afterwards, and everything's under control. I don't have a problem with that, and and yeah. Well, and and as as she writes in her follow up message, um, <laughs> but on rereading my message, I seem not to have been clear about the teriyaki chicken. What I meant was, I take it out 45 minutes in advance, and then cook it for maybe 30 minutes at 325. It is then ready for the first rush, meaning, and meanwhile, I've taken more out to wait a bit before going into the oven. And I would say, absolutely, this is a, this is a, is a, is a perfectly acceptable pra- practice. You might get dinged for it uh, by an inspector, but from a risk-based perspective, it's, it's completely, I wouldn't say completely without risk, but it's a very low-risk event. One of the first applications of computer modeling that I did was for a food company that was uh, fabricating uh, chicken pieces, um, uh, and they had a scenario where they they had uh, chicken which would rise over a period of multiple hours up to 50 degrees or 55 degrees uh, before being cooled back down during the fabrication process. And guess what? You can run the computer models uh, for salmonella growth on that, and it really makes an insignificant amount of of, of, of difference in the concentration of salmonella. Again, working from memory here on the numbers, so don't, don't quote me on that exactly. But the bottom line is, th- if you use computer models, and whether you include the lag phase or whether you don't, what you'll find is that very often what we would normally interpret to be um, significant abuse situations, in fact, as long as the temperature really stays you know, in the 40s or even in the low 50s, it's fine. I mean, in terms of promoting, I mean, it, maybe it's going to start to spoil, but again, in a couple of hours, that's not going to happen. And, and you might, and you probably don't get any uh, pathogen growth uh, at all, which, which actually reminds me of a, of a discussion I'm having with um, uh, NeuroNerd, who's invited me to North Carolina to come give a talk. Um, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about is, is this issue of uh, when you lose power in a, a restaurant or, or when food is out of temperature control, how can you use models uh, to basically assess the risk? And so this is a, a perennial topic. It's one that just seems to come up again and again in a variety of contexts. So, so I, I just, again, thanks to Deep Crimson for the, 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 the feedback and the insight. Awesome. Well, a little bit of uh, follow-up of my own. I will also be speaking uh, at that same uh, conference, and NeuroNerd has just uh, emailed me. And I'm going to be talking about, with uh, with a guy who I've been doing a project with in Charlotte, we're going to be talking about reducing food waste from retail settings in a safe way and uh, diverting um, you know, non-served leftover foods from catering events and hotels to um, food pantries and just the food safety um, 
focus that we've that we've put on that uh on that project um so yeah come i this i mean informal advertising come to the north carolina uh food safety and defense task force uh annual meeting may i think it's seventh and eighth it could be eighth and ninth i don't know when your talk is i know i'm talking on may 8th i, th- I think i'm talking on a tuesday i think is that eighth tuesday the eighth yeah there, there we you go, go. <laughs> tuesday's all the way down so 52 of them <laughs> Um, so uh, next bit of listener feedback. This is from uh, Janet Dupree, who says, uh, please share all details freely. Um, she says, I sure hope this link works for you um, regarding the tomato vinegar map of North Carolina and South Carolina. And she says, I heart you guys, my number one favorite podcast. So thank you very much for that, Janet. And we that the link did indeed uh, work. So this is a link to the Rusty Saw smokehouse barbecue and it's a wonderful picture and it has a picture of north carolina and south carolina and it includes the regions of both states which where where vinegar and pepper is the norm where mustard is the norm and that is only in south carolina where heavy tomato is the norm that is also south carolina and light tomato which spans north carolina and south carolina so that and i did I did indeed did indeed see some of these graphics as I was searching on uh, uh, after our last discussions and and these ones that are multiple states that show uh, the 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 um, uh, the the uh, barbecue sauce distributions. This is just this is fascinating stuff. I could just look at this stuff all day. Yeah, I, I could just eat it all day. <laughs> that, that too. <laughs> um, and, and and just. Uh, uh, a brief follow up, um, you know, nothing uh, specifically in feedback, but multiple people have either tweeted at me or talked to me about my beef ain't barbecue t-shirt. Um, and, uh, I, I will, uh, I, I, I will accept some beef. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 as I, as I said to, uh, one of our listeners, I'll flip flop right away. I will not cave. Give me, give me barbecue. I'll eat it, but I will also wear that, that shirt ironically. Um, but, uh, I just, I just want to eat. It's lunchtime too, Don. I, and I should have eaten <laughs> lunch. I just want some barbecue right now. Uh, can we, order, can we order some, someone, could, could, could someone postmate me one? Is there Uber? It, of course it'll get here three days from now. Once we post this, uh, <laughs> this podcast, but, oh, uh, Barbecue, barbecue. Yeah, so I so I had leftover pizza for lunch, so I did have I did have lunch, and actually recently, speaking of food that we're eating, um, I recently did a, um, a better process control school uh, right outside of Philadelphia, and it was uh, the weather was potentially inclement enough, and the drive was far enough that I just got uh, I just got a hotel in the area, so I didn't have to drive an hour and a half in the morning uh, before teaching all day, um, which I think is a reasonable. Uh, reasonable trade-off. And, uh, I, um, uh, there was a Korean restaurant that was right down the street from my hotel. And so I had uh, like Korean style barbecue for two nights in a row. And what I've learned is it's good, uh, but I need to learn so much more about, uh, Korean style cooking and, and how to order and stuff. Um, so, uh, but, but good, good news is I've got a Korean graduate student. And so I think she's going to get me sorted out. I'm see now I'm even more hungry. <laughs> not helping me not helping me at all Don. oh i'm so sorry um That's let's uh let's well the problem is we're doing a, a podcast that relates to food um That's you know what we could talk about uh uh cooking with hot water versus cold water this might be enough to uh to loot to kill your your appetite okay let's so see. 
So this comes uh, again from another listener who says, uh, please uh, share all details freely. Uh, This is from uh, Louis uh, Moglia. And Louis says, I have recently come to your podcast, having heard about it as I work through my way through the back catalog of Back to Work. So so thanks to uh, Dan and uh, Merlin for um, talking about us and and, the uh, you know, get, inspiring their listeners to listen to our podcast. Um, he said this, uh, uh, Lewis writes, I haven't listened to every episode, but I'm getting there. I hope you can settle a dispute for me. Is there a danger to use water from the hot tap to cook pasta? The water heater in question is a classic tank heater that's about 20 years old. And m- my answer to, to Logan was, well, first of all, I don't know. And second of all, I'm, I, it's, I'm not an expert, but but I can Google stuff <laughs> on the right. internet, which I'm sure Lewis can do as well. But the difference is when when I Google stuff, I know what to tune in and what to tune out, and I can probably get to a, a reasonable uh, approximation of a scientific answer uh, pretty quick quickly. So the first thing that I came across was an article from a website called Pop Sugar and and uh, Pop Sugar. Uh, PopSugar.com, um, healthy cooking tips start with cold water. Um, which is a it's a perfectly fine um, article. I, again, I, it's like it's not uh, it's not peer reviewed, but what it does link to in the uh, Pop Sugar article is a great page, uh, which is as I quipped to Lewis is still up at the EPA because apparently the EPA has been taking down um, web pages about stuff. But, but the uh, web page the is, is still fine, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and this is a, a great page from EPA entitled "Basic Information About Lead in Drinking Water." And so, uh, basically, the, the bottom line, and we'll link to this as well as to the Pop Sugar article, because props to them for being a, a, a top hit on Google and, and leading me in the right direction. Um, uh, as I wrote to Lewis, uh, you nor I are chemists or toxicologists, uh, but the EPA page does um, give some good advice. Um, uh, the EPA page says that hot water uh, will uh, lead to lead from. It's terrible typing uh, will lead to lead from more pipes um, uh, or maybe that's supposed to be leach I probably did that with uh, uh, dictation anyway hot water will leach more lead from pipes if the lead is in the pipes to begin with. Um, now, uh, personally, I live in a house that was built in the 1920s, um, and so we could potentially have lead pipes in the house. Um, and we use a water filter, um, uh, you know, not for any specific concern about lead, but uh, I did go and read the label on that water filter, and the, the water filter says it will reduce lead and mercury, uh, amongst other things. Uh, not viruses, but it does filter out parasites. Not really worried about parasites because uh, we have uh, treated municipal water, but but but, I, I, but potentially uh, lead um, from our own pipes could be a problem. Um, so again, good information on the EPA webpage. It says if you're really concerned, you can get your water tested for lead. And obviously, this is not a problem everywhere. But but certainly, uh, there's at least uh, one city in in Michigan where uh, lead in the drinking water supply uh, was is a, a scandal. A scandalous, terrible, terrible thing. So, um, bottom line is, uh, if you're concerned about lead, uh, you can get your w- water tested. Uh, you can also get a filter. And yes, uh, all thing all. All other things being equal, uh, cold water is you can probably you can choose cold water over hot water. It's going to have, I would say, a minimal effect on risk, but you know potentially, uh, yeah, could 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 have a could have an effect on risk. So why not go with the cold water? It sounds good. I have just texted you yep. uh, a link to a very similar question that was on Chowhound.com, which is uh, you know a foodie kind of site, uh, kind of Reddit for foodies. Um, and I want to, you know, always Don, always read the comments, right? <laughs> uh, and so this is from, uh, you know, the, the question, uh, was, um, 
you know, hot or cold tap water for boiling pasta is an old wives tale that you should boil cold water for making pasta. I've always heard that using hot water from the tap may contain chemicals, minerals, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. All the same stuff. Um, and, uh, my favorite is, uh, Ruth Laffler who writes, oh, I missed it here. had it, uh, something about water is water, physics are physics. Everyone just don't worry about it. <laughs> Um, um, okay, I, but, uh, you know, dose I, makes I know. the poison in toxicology. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, be careful about what you put into your body. <laughs> I just love, I just love the, everyone calm down, everyone go away. Uh, then well, people talk about using, um, bottled water to cook pasta. If you're worried about this, that seems a little excessive. I would say better, better. I mean, cause bottled water has its own consequences, right? Uh, inc- including creation of, uh, plastic waste. So, um, you know, I, I still stand by my advice, uh, get a water filter and get your water tested if you're worried about it. Agreed. <laughs> and use, and use cold water. Why not? And, al- and always read the comments. <laughs> Unless you never read the comments. Well, there's that um, uh, so, so actually some interesting feedback um, from um, a, a listener to the show. And this, this came in uh, not through the feedback. So I don't know whether uh, this listener uh, wants to be revealed or not. But uh, let's just say thanks to uh, – let's say thanks to listener Keith. Um, uh, all joking aside, uh, this Onion article made me wonder, uh, could you imagine a case where it would be too late to recall something? And he, he provided us with a link to an article um, from uh, uh, actually a, a tweet from The Onion. Uh, and the, the title of the tweet is FDA cancels bacon recall after finding U.S. population already ate it all. And so, <laughs> uh, and so the question is, uh, c- could it ever be too late to recall something? And and I, and I, my response, and I'll, I'll read my response that I wrote uh, to listener Keith, and then you can chime in. Um, uh, if it's a highly perishable food item, but for some reason the outbreak was difficult to detect, you could make a logical argument that, for example, uh, six months after a fresh cut leafy greens uh, outbreak, um, there's no point in issuing a recall because leafy greens are not going to last for six months. But I, and I didn't do any searching on this to see if there were any examples, but uh, what, what are your thoughts on this, Ben? My thought is it's never too late. I, 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 <laughs> and I, I, even even in, in your leafy greens uh, example, and this the, he, here's the thing: for me, a recall is not just about a public health Im- immediate situation. A recall is about um, a corrective action. And letting people know that there was an issue and now I'm doing something about it. Like it's as much uh, a marketing uh, communications vehicle as it is a public health vehicle, depending on what the uh, on what the product is. And if if there was even if that there's a, a, a very, very high chance that that product is has been consumed, I, I think it's a, the duty of the company to let people know um, that, that something happened. Now, I guess, uh, I'll qualify that with maybe, maybe we can do that in ways that aren't recall related, but I, I think I, I don't like the process of, um, well, we know we can't get that product back because, you know, because likely it's all been eaten. So we shouldn't do anything about it because there's a lot of times that they don't get all the product back anyway, even if the product is, is still, uh, on the shelf. Um, I, 
leafy greens are maybe a, a special situation, but there are lots of foods that may have been um, preserved somehow by somebody through freezing uh, or in a, you know, another way that I think it's important that they get that information out to someone to say, hey, this product was re- had been uh, recalled. The other thing, if I can rant on this a little bit, is looking at um, Bluebell ice cream as an example. Um, yeah, there was a recall um, that uh, that happened because the the problem hadn't been addressed. But had all the product been removed from the, from the shelves, I think you do a disservice of being able to connect the dots on illnesses or um, you know help with that epidemiological. Um, uh, you know, piecing, piecing things together if you don't talk about the stuff publicly. So maybe it's not a recall, but somehow knowing that there was um, a level of contamination, it's up to the to the industry to tell people that. Yeah, and this this actually reminds me of an article <clears throat> that I wrote um, with uh, Emma Hartnett and Greg Powley um, uh, on modeling the public health system response to a terrorist event in the food supply. And you know, we were looking at like the speed of diagnosis versus the, you know, the, the consequences of, of taking action. And one of the interesting um, findings was it really makes a difference what kind of food you're talking about. If you're talking about a food where the, the, it's, it's out of the market very quickly, you have a limited ability to make, uh, make a difference. Um, if you learn something, whereas a food that has a much longer shelf life, like let's say ice cream or peanut butter, um, you have, uh, you have the ability to, um, to to affect more change because the, the the shelf life and the time the food is in the food supply is uh, is certainly longer. And then the other the other point that I'll make is um, I have done some some consulting work for companies where with dry food products that might contain salmonella, and the issue was they wanted to avoid doing a recall and they had a small potentially a small amount of salmonella because it was one ingredient of many. And I was able to do some calculations, uh, making assumptions about and these are very long shelf life products make make some calculations around the actual risk associated with the product and help them partition their recall to say, okay, well, these are products that still pose a reasonable risk. We're going to recall those. These are products that were either made a long time ago that have a very now a, a lower predicted concentration of salmonella because of decline over time and or a smaller fraction of the raw material was potentially contaminated. And it helped them to prioritize their efforts and to maybe not recall everything that they made, uh, but to do a, a more targeted recall. And so I think that there is some, uh, there is some, there's clearly is some benefit in thinking about um, the nature of the product and the, and the nature of the risk. And, 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 and yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's never late, too late to do something. Uh, I guess the counterpoint to that was, but you should do something based on risk wherever you can. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And don't just look at it as a public health requirement. Right. right? Like there's right. there's other reasons. Yeah. Yep. Uh, speaking of some uh, low moisture foods, I have a piece of feedback um, that I want to want to talk about as well. And um, this comes from someone who doesn't who sent it to us by email and uh, it is not uh, clear. Uh, so we will um, name this individual Deep Flower. <laughs> Um, hi, Ben and Don. Hope you're both well. I have a question about flower, th- flower thermal treatment mm. for bacterial load reduction for you. BuzzFeed's Tasty has a new, I think, video out, one where you cook flour in an oven for five minutes for safety. 
is it long enough or is this long enough to achieve a quote safe or safer cookie dough? Oh, and uh, Deep Deep Flower does say, uh, feel free to read my email. Name is fine too. So this is from Kenna Huff. Thanks, uh, Kenna. <laughs> thanks, Kenna. Um, and and so um, you, you know, uh, I'll, you wrote back and said thanks for sharing this. Bottom line is, is simply we don't know, or at least I don't know of any validated cooking directions for dry flour. And this is one where, and I I agree with you, and I think that this is one where um, th- this dry. Um, heat. So, so in the video, it is uh, bake at 375 for five minutes. And I, that may do something for uh, shigatoxin producing E. coli. Uh, and it probably does. But um, I think especially for salmonella, I don't, you know, th- we're talking about heat treating without the presence of, of moisture. I, I don't think it's going to do much at all. I think, you know, it, I, I don't know if it's if it's going to reduce risk, but, um, th- you know, th- that's the same type of, uh, you know, process of a stressed, uh, dry roasted uh, type uh, salmonella, you know, type, type product that makes salmonella more hearty. So, I you know, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I would say, my again, we don't know of any science. Um, um, if BuzzFeed, if you're listening and you have science in support of this, uh, please let us know. But yeah, there's a, and I took a, and a thank you for finding this. I, I didn't get uh, everything flagged that was listener feedback, especially if it, if it came in uh, not via the web, uh, not via the, the feedback form on the, on the podcast website. And again, that's not on you guys. That's just on, on us, uh, on me. Um, but the, the I screenshotted uh, from the video, uh, bake 350 for five minutes, which is what you just said. To, and then and then asterisk to kill bacteria, which it's like okay, that's fine. But please please show me yeah. the evidence, right? Uh, because uh, because uh, r- uh, raw flour, I don't think you're going to get much reduction at all. And again, we yeah. need we need uh, it would be good to have some some data, some science on this. But I'm my prediction is a, a, a negligible effect on uh, on pathogens. Uh, uh, you know, because it's well, just, it's just it's dry heat. It's not it's not yeah. it's not going to work. And and here's the thing. Yeah, it probably does kill some bacteria. Who cares? Well, I want to kill pathogens. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Like, like, you know, and it's, you know, again, another example of, um, you know, some of the things that, that we talk about. And I, I did an interview um, last week with, with somebody, and I can't remember. I don't think this stuff's published yet, but about, uh, well, it was about cutting boards. And it's, um, it's going to be an upcoming um, Consumer Reports magazine. And, uh, you know, the conversation about, is there more bacteria on, um, you know, uh, cutting wood cutting boards versus plastic cutting boards? And I'm like, bacteria is not even the right question. Can one of them support pathogens, you know, more than the other? And and no, not you know, not really. And they both have different, uh, you know, trade offs. And we went into the whole cutting board conversation. But even, you know, this this is a concept that that I, you know, you and I have have talked about. Um, you know, the difference between spoilage, microorganisms, uh, you know, quote bacteria and pathogens, and and I'd even throw there the 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 idea of risk. These are things that aren't really well understood, and people throw the terms around, and that gets makes things confusing. So yeah. Yeah, and 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 oh, it's it's uh, it's and and again, uh, thanks uh, thanks to uh, Kenna for sharing this. 
I, Facebook is a mess, right? It's like I want to. I, I found this video with no with no problem um, uh, when when Kenna sent it to us, and now I'm trying to find something I can link to in the uh, in the podcast, uh, and it's just it's uh, anyway, it's just, it's annoying. I, th- I think I have a link for you. Let me see if I can. Oh, yeah. well, I've, I've got the link that she sent. I just oh anyway, oh, you want to do something that's non Facebook? Well, yeah, but you can't because it's in you Facebook. Oh, it's Facebook. Damn Facebook. So anyway, uh, hey, I got another piece of feedback here, and I don't think. You had thrown this one in um, to the uh, to the super drop, secret Dropbox, but mm-hmm. maybe you did. And it's just not flagged, um, and it is from Tom Anderson, who says share all details freely. Um, and Tom writes, "Deep blogging engineer here," and dot dot dot, which I love. It says I was just finishing up a blog post on how to design with fans when you asked on episode one forty seven for an engineer <laughs> to talk about reversing the direction of airflow in a hand dryer. And this is why I love the internet. Tom, thank you for answering. The short short answer is no. There is not a way to use suction instead of positive pressure for a non-contact hair dryer or hand dryer. There are three possible ways to remove the water. One, hot air. Can't preheat the outside air when using suction. Two, blast water away with high pressure airflow. If reversed, this much much suction would be dangerous. That's my favorite (laughs) part of this answer. Um, it would suck your hands, necktie, <laughs> into the machine. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And then number three, air knife, a shaped curtain of moving air. These are built with nozzle designs that don't work with suction. Um, and so, so he, you know, he kind of, he, he goes on to say, um, you can also imagine a system with one fan blowing and another one suck, sucking. This is called a series connection. Turns out as it does, Don, there's always, it turns out. Turns out in open designs, this is not nearly as effective as the same two fans in parallel where both are blowing. This hand dryer uh, is an open design uh, because the spot where you put your hands has low resistance to airflow. In closed designs, such as making a pressurized box, uh, fans can be put in series to increase the system pressure. Um, so it, it, he he goes on to, to link a couple of things uh, for us um, and then highlights that Dyson is aware of microbiological problems with hand dryers. They don't want bacteria to build up in their machines uh, for energy efficiency. They don't want to use heat to dry it out. Uh, and so he links to a patent that we'll also um, link to. But this uh, this is why we do the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, because I did have uh, I did think, you know, why not? Why not suck instead of blow? And uh, the reason is, uh, it would be dangerous, and you, your hands would get sucked into the machine. <laughs> oh, it's good. Oh, very good. And so, sorry. What's the? What's the? Is that in Dropbox? No, it was an email. Oh. But I'll put it. I'll put it in Dropbox. Okay, thanks. It's going, it's going into Dropbox right now. Oh, there's. I there. I, you know, I. Ah, oh God, I got to do a better job of 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 a follow up here because um, there are a couple of uh, things that came in via tweet uh, that that actually would be really good um, to to talk about. Um, so let me let me get those. Uh, let me get uh, get these uh, started up. So. Um, so and this so this comes in uh, from uh, Todd Alahitan uh, on Twitter, and Todd writes, "I know it may vary from your usual format, but an episode 
uh, 101 Food Safety for Immunocompromised People would be fantastic and appreciated. Um, do you, uh, is this something we want to put off for another day? Is this something that you want to, to start in on? What are your, what are your thoughts on food safety 101 for immunocompromised? Oh man. Yeah. So I, I didn't have a chance to, to, um, to do, uh, a lot of digging on this, but I will point to, um, a group that we've talked about, uh, in the past out of, um, the Metro university of Cardiff. Uh, in Wales and um, Ellen Evans, a, a researcher there. And she has done, I think, probably the most amount of work on um, uh, immunocompromised individuals, either elderly or um, uh, people going through cancer treatment, especially as it relates to listeria concerns. And so um, I'm going to link to a couple of um, a, a couple of papers that um, that she has has developed, and um, uh, uh, some of the stuff that um, that I've seen Ellen present on is is really just focusing on raising some level of awareness that individual immunocompromised or immunocompromised individuals are. Are, are different and have to treat food separately. Like, like and I, you know, I, I get that's where the, the tweet's coming from, but there's just a lack of recognition in the healthcare community, um, in, you know, in, in individuals that are providing support to immunocompromised individ- folks that they, they need to look at food differently than, than someone who may not be, um, in the same situation. Uh, and, and so Ellen's got, um, uh, some, uh, what I, what I think are some really cool, uh, you know, publications on, uh, on that. And so we can link to that. Yeah. I found at least one of hers, uh, entitled an assessment of food safety information provision for UK chemotherapy patients to reduce the risk of foodborne infection. That's, that's the one. Cool. And I think she's got, uh, in that paper, I think she links to a couple of interventions uh, that are focused specifically on uh, chemotherapy uh, patients. Cool. Cool. Um, and then uh, another uh, tweet that came in uh, almost about the same time. Uh, this is from uh, Adam Pothast, uh, who writes, is it a frequently asked question where to start your podcast back catalog to get food safety basics? And if so, is there a frequently given answer? Um I don't think so, because uh, we didn't do the podcast in that way. Um, but what would you what would you say, Ben, if somebody wanted to get food safety basics? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if we we're really the food safety basic podcast, because um, okay. I, I think a lot of the stuff and that not to um, not to flip the the question too much, but I think what what we what we have tried to focus on our larger, larger picture, um, issues. And then we go pretty, pretty in depth on them. Um, I think there are a few, if, if, um, if you're looking to, to start somewhere, I'd start with the show notes and, and pick something that you're, um, that you're interested in, uh, in, in the realm of, you know, learning about whether that's, um, consumer handling or cooking or salmonella or hepatitis A in restaurant folks. And then, and then start with that episode where, where you find from those show notes that we're, that we're talking about it. But I don't, I mean, 
I, I, I don't think we, the, the only time that we've really focused on, um, uh, food safety basics on, you know, recommendations to, to folks that, uh, has been, um, uh, late last or last summer, I guess, when uh, Houston was de- dealing with um, flooding and aftermath of the hurricane, uh, we did talk about uh, you know ba- food safety basics for um, you know, emergency situations, uh, and that yeah that might be a good a good place to start. But it's pretty that's pretty specific. Yeah, and and I'll say too what we will do is in this in the show notes for this episode we will link to uh, both foodsafety.gov and Fight Back. Um, which are two uh, information resources that we've criticized in the past because they're they're pretty. Again, what what why this podcast is great is that we show that it depends and it's complicated. Uh, but if you're looking, if you're trying to teach somebody food safety basics, that's probably not a good message to start with. But but certainly uh, you could do a lot worse to give yourself a 101 food safety education. Um, uh, you could do worse than reading foodsafety.gov and and fightback.org. So so, yeah. so certainly those are those are good places to start. Oh, also uh, I do want to mention. So one of the first things I did when I was an extension specialist at Rutgers is back in 1991, I wrote a series of fact sheets, which are essentially uh, food safety basics, and I have not updated them. And it uh, turns out there's a new faculty member in the uh, Family and Consumer Health Sciences Department um, who wanted to uh, update them or rewrite them. And I said, have at it. And if you want me as a co-author, I'm happy to, to do it and go for it because I haven't had the energy or the enthusiasm. But I love the idea of somebody else taking stuff that I wrote um, almost 30 years ago, more than more than 25 years ago and updating it. So, uh, so go for it. <laughs> awesome. I have a, well, if we're going to put plugs in on that, I got <laughs> to find something. I, we, we did some, uh, food safety info sheets a while ago on, um, food safety myths, sort of things that, uh, that you might think about or hear about. And I'm going to have to find the link on this, but I think we, we have like 10 different fact sheets, um, that were focused on, uh, just like, uh, you know, is local food safer than, um, than food that comes from, uh, other places? Well, and, and um, let's, let me, let me, let me do an even better job of plugging your work. I would say if you want a good food safety one-on-one, just find the repository of all the food safety info sheets and just start reading oh, sure. those because they are, they are not, they're bite size, they're snapshots. They focus on what was relevant, you know, to an outbreak at the time. I mean, it's, that that's perfect, right? It's, 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 and, and it's written in in your interesting and fun style, which, you know, nothing against fight back or foodsafety.gov, but, you know, it's probably a more entertaining read. (laughs) uh, Yes, I would hope so. And that's, uh, those are at barf blog, uh, and I'm going to send you the link, but it's barf blog, uh, backslash, uh, barf blog.com backslash info sheets. There you go. Um, so yeah, check check those out. But I'll see if I can find these myths because I really like like those. I, I in fact uh, if I'm ever asked to go talk to a bunch of um, consumers or you know just a community group about food safety, I use these myths as a jumping off point. You know things like you should always wash your chicken is myth or fact. Um, so I'll see if I can find that and we can link to those as well. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, there was one more here. Oh, here we go. I got another piece of feedback um, from uh, Robert Warwick. Uh, Robert writes, 
I've become a recent fan of the podcast. My question is regarding prime rib. There are various cooking time temperatures that are used in recipes. What are some different methods of cooking prime rib? And is there an exception if the prime rib is considered whole muscle intact meat? Why is salmonella able to permeate other types of animal protein, poultry, pork, lamb, but not beef? Thanks, Robert. Right. So, so yeah, and thank you. This was the last one that was actually on my list. And, and so let me read my answer, then you can chime in. But let me also say, if, you, if you're out there and you're a listener and you give us feedback and we don't read it, um, pr- probably we don't have a good mechanism to go back and, and, and remember that we forgot to read it. And so by all means, send it to us again. It's not because we don't like you or whatever. It's just that we're not very good <laughs> at being organized. We do the best we can. So, but d- don't worry. Um, just, uh, you know, by all means, you know, send us that thing that you had questions about If we don't answer it, um, in, in, you know, by the next episode uh, or the next couple of episodes, cause we might be a little bit behind, um, by all means, send it to us again. We won't, we won't mind. Um, yeah. So, so what I, so I'll, let me read you what I wrote to Robert. Um, uh, so we can certainly talk about times and temperatures. Um, and, and again, I would say, USDA FSIS Appendix A is a great way of showing um, different times and different temperatures that result in the same degree of safety and, and where the degree of safety is measured by log reductions. Um, uh, I think, uh, and I, I think you probably agree, but we can assume that pathogens will not be present in whole muscle tissue, whether that tissue is beef, por- poultry, pork, or lamb. Now, Mechanically tenderized beef is a specialized thing, and that is a process uh, where um, that because of that tenderization process, pathogens that are on the surface may be um, basically pushed into the whole mus- muscle. Now, I know mechanically tenderized beef is a thing. The question is, do you also have mechanically tenderized poultry, pork, or lamb? Um, because... If the meat is mechanically tenderized, um, that that does mean that there's a risk. And I know that there's a lot. We've talked about this before on the podcast that mechanically tenderized beef, um, uh, there's there's confusion or there's there's anyway the labeling of that product is complex it's been an issue at cfp i don't think it's a resolved issue um in that uh, i think usda requires it but the food code doesn't require it and so it turns out uh it turns out it's complicated but anyway we will link to appendix a for times and temperatures but anyway ben uh, mechanically tenderized meat yeah, well, and I'm going to add in something else. Sure. Mechanically tenderized uh, beef has a its own you know specific uh, definition, but I'll, I'll also include enhanced meats into this as well. So um, uh, we'll link to this uh, um, uh, link to something from NPR from 2011 that talks about enhanced meats. But uh, there's an estimation um, that where is it here? Uh, according to USDA, um, 30% of our poultry, 15% of beef and 90% of our pork are injected with some kind of liquid solution before sale. And this is enhancement. So it's for flavor. It's usually some salt that's put that's in there. So that, so the whole muscle part, I'm not going to argue with you at all. Greed. What we don't know often is how and where, um, the injection happens. And if through that injection, uh, you know, there's pathogens on that injection site, then it gets pushed inside that, that whole muscle meat. Now, fortunately 
when you're enhancing with a high sodium um, solution, it, it may do something to um, to reduce the risk. But but enhancing and mechanically tenderizing uh, has the chance to push stuff on you know that's on the outside to the inside. Well, and in fact, there have been documented outbreaks where if you are injecting with a solution, um, th- if you don't properly clean that injecting equipment, you can basically inoculate. Um, right. Uh, and, and there have been there have been outbreaks about that. So, yeah, and we've seen outbreaks linked to mechanically tenderized beef. Yep. Um, and and my my bigger. I, so I know this question is about prime rib. My bigger concern is someone who looks at a mechanically tenderized beef product, say it's a, um, a you know skirt steak or flank steak or whatever, um, and can't identify that that it's been mechanically tenderized and then cooks that piece that cut of meat just like they would something that was fully intact. And um, that you know that that's the the issue. Prime rib is not something, especially with the time-temperature combinations, not one that I think people are typically um, eating in a way like they would a rare steak. You, you can definitely get different degrees of doneness in prime rib, but the time-temperature combinations to the center probably are, are going to be, um, you know, if, if they're following uh, food code or um, USDA Appendix A, enough to... Um, uh, you know, to, to reduce risk. Uh, I, I'm more worried about steak that, that looks like it's fully intact. Okay, good. Cool, cool. Um, and there you go, NPR, enhanced meat. Um, I've got one more. This is kind of a Twitter thing. Sure. Before we move on. So uh, my, uh, Michael Bazzacco, uh, friend, friend of the podcast, uh, tweeted something at us uh, earlier this week, and um, he tweeted a picture uh, that he grabbed. I'm not sure exactly where it came from, uh, but it's a picture of a really – it's from collegehumor.com, a really crusty, uh, dried-up dish. And uh, it, the caption is, so I keep one bowl specifically for ramen that I never wash because I like the leftover flavors mixing with new ones. And I guess like seasoning my cast iron pot. Anyone else do this? My favorite combination is gin ramen and shin ramen, both spicy. And uh, Mike's uh, Michael's comment was, I would recommend against this thoughts. Um, <laughs> and and I liked your your. Your answer was what, right, right on with what I was going to say. Gross, low risk, depending on the details. Yep. Um, and uh, then uh, my, Mike Bazzacco, uh responding to uh, Mike Batts, who said, I can't get past this person thinks you season a cast iron pan by just leaving dirty. <laughs> Disgusting. And Bazzacco's response was, I store mine in my fish tank, which I love. <laughs> Yeah, and the fish will fish will get it clean for you. They'll they'll eat it. Yeah. They'll eat it clean, just like your just like your feet, just like I'm a, a pedicure. Yeah. Oh, so so there you go, uh, Don. The big big topic. I want to I want to move off of feedback. Okay. I want to move. Is that is that okay to do? Are yeah. We ready, ready to a big topic of the of the week here um, is, uh, expanding a little bit on, on something we had, uh, talked about in a previous podcast, but, um, we, we now have a, uh, company that's been linked to, um, the the Listeria, massive Listeria outbreak in in South Africa. And, um, 
this company I don't think is doing a great job. Uh, well, I mean, clearly they're they're not doing a great job of listeria control, but it, the the public comments and um, press conference that they've had. Uh, it's, it's like a situation where they say, Hey, uh, yeah, there's no direct link that it's us, but if it is us, we're sorry. <laughs> and it, yeah. So the company's, uh, uh, the brand is enterprise and the product that's been linked, um, epidemiologically to the illnesses, um, and with, um, microbiological data is a Poloni project, a product, which is not baloney but I think it's the same. It's just with a P instead of a B. Uh, and it's a, a cooked, uh, cooked deli meat or processed deli meat that, uh, is served on sandwiches. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been kind of, kind of a crazy week of uh, conversations with them. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit on the, um, uh, the podcast we recorded earlier, uh, with food safety matters. And it, I just, you know, it's not, I really don't get how food companies have not yet learned that um, when the epidemiology says it's you, saying that it, it hasn't been proven to be linked to you is just it's just stupid. It doesn't it doesn't wear well. It's not the right re- reaction. You need to own it. Right. And and fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's going to it doesn't matter if you're not the only player, right? Like I, I get it where someone is like, well, yeah, it's been linked to us. And this, this, this case is a tiger brand, uh, product, but you're gonna, you're gonna have to deal with it. And so it, something, you know, someone's linked it, linked it to you. So figure out how much of it is your problem? How much is someone else's problem? And I don't know if it's anybody else's problem in, in this case, but, um, you know, bagging on epidemiologists is not, not good. It never turns out right. Um, I'm going to, we're, we're going to link to an article that came out a couple of days ago, which also harkens to this same old, same old issue that we keep coming up. Um, companies that lead, that have big outbreaks, not all the time, but it's it seems to come up over and over again that they had some sort of a warning that they had a problem and they just didn't do anything about it. And um, I'm going to highlight something that was in the Sunday Times um, uh, on March 11th uh, that says, quote, and even after being warned last month that Listeria was rampant at its uh, Wayne factory, the Tiger Brands operation continued to churn out tons of potentially dangerous products, choosing to do only a, quote, silent recall of one brand, Mieli Kip, on February 14th. The factory was shut down only last weekend, so that would be around the 8th or so of, uh, of March, and Listeria strain, after Listeria strain was confirmed being the deadly ST6. So, Don, the way that I read this is investigators come in and say, we found a bunch of uh, salmonella or sorry, Listeria positives. We don't know yet because we haven't done the molecular work to see whether this is the outbreak strain or not. But you've got a bunch of Listeria going on here. So do something. And um, their response was, I, my guess, um, it says, quote, silent recall. I think that means 
what we would call here a market withdrawal, where they called up some suppliers and said, hey, um, this Miele kit, you guys should probably take it off the shelves, but not a full public thing. And there's a bunch of product that's sitting in people's refrigerators, that's probably at restaurants, that's being served day in and day out for three weeks uh, before um, you know being shut down once the actual outbreak strain was found. Yeah, you know, and I was just teaching a better process control school earlier in the week, as I said, and uh, one of the things that we talk about in that course, which is for, for canned foods, for low-acid and acidified foods, but, you know, the those regulations, those U.S. regulations for those foods require recall to the consumer level, which means the company needs to figure out how to inform the people that it sold product to, and then those people need to work with the company to get it out of people's pantries or refrigerators or what have you, and if you don't do that... You're complete in my in my opinion. You're complicit, right? You you are you're contributing to to illness, and it's just uh, yeah, it's just it's it's really sad. And this is a this is a huge outbreak. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. One hundred one hundred eighty three dead so far. Uh, yeah, tragic. And not um, like the outbreak's not over, right? right like right. this product was still on the on the shelves until until last week. Um, so. A couple more things on on this outbreak, and and I I don't want to look. I don't want to leave this this topic because there's there's so much there's so much here. So I'm going to read yeah. some some quotes uh, from um, the press conference that uh, Tiger Brands CEO Lawrence McDougal uh, had. Um, and so uh, he, he was asked about what the company's role was. He said, we are dealing with a very, very serious issue that pertains to people's health and the well-being of our population in South Africa. Any loss of life is tragic. We are all concerned about the outbreak of listeriosis in our country. And as the CEO of Tiger Brands, it is devastating for me to have our products linked to this outbreak. Um, so, okay, good, good message. That's better. That's better than the first message I heard from him. Well, yeah. So, but that's, that was the first thing he said. Then the okay. follow up to that is on whether the company will take any responsibility for the 180 deaths. We are taking per quote, we are taking precautions to protect the consumers. There is no direct link with the deaths to our products that we are aware of at this point. Nothing. What are we being gaslighted here? <laughs> like, what what is what is this uh, you know uh, situation? So in one one sense, the health department or Department of Health shut their factories and said, um, "Hey, we found the the strain." But uh, you know, on the other hand, it's uh, you know, it's I don't know. Yeah, you found the strain. Yeah, people are probably getting sick, but we don't know for sure that we killed these people. Right, right. I mean, because they could be killed from the same strain from a different food from a different company. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. yes, that's a theoretical possibility, but it's it's idiotic. Like what? So what would this guy? What does this guy? Th what is this guy looking for? Is he looking for a videotape of the person eating their product and and then uh, of you know proof that they didn't eat any other products that might have contained the same strain? I mean. It's uh, it's uh, like what does he want? I, I don't know. I, I mean, no. yeah, what does he want? I don't know. I mean, anyway, it's I'm heartened to know that that Bill Marler um, is is involved and has visited South Africa, and I you know I hope this this jerk gets what's coming to him because this is uh, yeah 
you know, well, and probably he's listening to the lawyers that are telling him that he shouldn't admit anything. But that's, you know, we know the way this plays out over and over again is it's going to come out, right? All of the facts are going to come out. And so this is just not the right way to handle this. Um, yeah, no, not at all. Uh, the next, next thing here that we have is, um, our, one right here. Okay. So, so it, how it seems this has unfolded is, uh, government authorities went in and took some, took a bunch of swabs, found some, uh, Listeria monocytogenes, um, ST6 in, in product. And he asks, he was asked whether, um, you know, whether their internal tiger brand, uh, swabs, uh, could, you know, show the same thing. And he says, all of our tests and results indicate we kept a very high standard of quality protocols within our sites. The expectations going forward is those standards are significantly increased and there's going to be zero detection of the going forward. Um, and then he was probed and said, okay, well, what about, you know, did you find anything on ST6? And he said, well, the government found, confirmed the strain was linked to the outbreak. I cannot remember if they had any linkage to the deaths, which is insane. Um, to be clear, we have, we have not found ST6 in our manufacturing facility. We have not received our own test back yet. At this stage, we're acting on information that we got from the government. Yeah, because they're the regulator. Really doesn't matter what's in your tests. <laughs> like they, they are trying to find it. You might not be. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I. Oh, jeez. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's terrible. So so anyway, um, the last piece that uh, that I want to highlight on this. Oh wait, so 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 on how Tiger Brands intends to get consumer get back consumer trust. Quote: We are not to the stage to even contemplate that right now. We are thinking about the consumers, their health, and their safety and not the reestablishment of the brand at this point. Um, but, of course, we, we've also already said that we're not sure that we actually caused the problem. Right. I mean, but, well, but apparently he's not thinking about how to reestablish consumer trust yet. He's just, I, thoughts, thoughts and prayers, Ben. Thoughts and prayers thoughts and for prayers. the victims. <sighs> and right, right, over, right, right after this, um, he gets a uh, a message that says, or there's another message that, that comes out a day after that says they have appointed a team of local and international scientific experts to identify the root cause of the listeria strain. Um, although it said they said in the same in the same statement that they have sufficient protocols in place to deal with listeriosis and they have done all they can to fight the disease. Don. Uh, this is not going to play out well. No, I, I, I look, I look for, uh, I look for more, more to play out here. And like I said, I hope this, this guy gets what's coming to him because uh, this, this just smells like bullshit to me. Yeah, it does it does? Ah, oh, so terrible, terrible stuff. Um, and um, it, I, you know, I, we, we've talked about. Um, uh, the situation with um, HIV in South Africa and that um, be, you know maybe being a, a, a contributing factor here. Um, regardless, you, you can't. You got to do something like this. It might not have been such a huge magnitude uh, outbreak or or illness, but I was talking with uh, Sophie Kathari about this yesterday, who does a lot of work on listeria, and her point was, yeah, but there's always been a lot of HIV. Why why, why didn't we have a big outbreak last year? 
right? Like, like that, what, what, what's different about this? Yes. That probably impacted the magnitude, but, um, but we're not seeing these types you know, of, of, Listeria outbreaks year after year. Well, I would say, you know, I mean, we know from listeria outbreaks in this country, uh, maybe they had a major renovation going on at the plant. Maybe that disrupted their HVAC system. Maybe they changed a formulation. Um, maybe they had a, they changed a cleaning chemical, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, HIV explains the magnitude of the outbreak. It doesn't explain why the outbreak happened this year and not last year. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, I want to talk to you now, Don, mm-hmm. about SaveTheFood.com. Okay, let's save this, the food, Ben. This just came to my attention, uh, literally right before we started recording the podcast. So uh, I'm working on a uh, a project that I've mentioned with uh, good folks at RTI and uh, Sherry Cates uh, and Ellen Thomas from RTI were hanging out uh, this afternoon or over lunch uh, on uh, uh, while we were working on our report uh, on consumer handling. Um, and uh, at the end of our conversation, Sherry said, hey, have you seen the ad council's um, thing, uh, you know, campaign on food waste? Um, and I was like, no, I don't even know what, you know, what you're talking about. And so she sent me, or uh, we, I Googled, um, uh, a little bit about this and we sat and watched, um, a, a couple of kind of not great, um, uh, videos, but from this, uh, the campaign is better eight than never. And it's, uh, from the, you know, funded from, I think NRDC, the natural resource defense coalition council, um, council. Okay. Uh, and, uh, the idea is there's a lot of food waste out there. I agree. Food waste is not, not good. Um, in fact, you know, I mentioned before, that's what, you know, one of the projects that I'm really passionate about is working with, um, diverting food waste from restaurants in a safe way to food banks and food pantries. And there was some great stuff that came out of one of my PhD students, um, uh, thesis or dissertations on, um, uh, working with food pantries and food banks and how food waste and best before dates are, are a problem. Um, but this is a really weird and fascinating website, save the food.com. Um, and so they're, the, the tag here is cook it, store it, share it. And I thought that that meant cook the food, store the food, share the food. And I was like, oh, I want to see about share the food. What does that mean? Share it means share the message. Okay. Um, but so cook it as a way of reducing salt, um, reducing uh, food waste is okay. I, I get it. Like, you know, if as, as food is starting to spoil, how can we salvage some of it? And sometimes we can cook it in, in different ways. Um, but if you cook, if you li- click on the savethefood.com website and you click on cook it, it provides a bunch of recipes f- for cooking with food scraps. And this is where I thought it went a little sideways for me. And it's because the featured recipe, Don, is something called salt-roasted beet carpaccio with tahini and salon. <sighs> if you look at a lot of the what, how to cook things and the recipes that they provide, they have things like some tips on using brown, brown bananas. You know, make banana bread. I like that one. Use bruised pears. Great. Make a pan dowdy. Um, 
but there are four or five recipes that are specifically about beets. And I don't know if there's a lot of beet waste going on, but it sounds like that that was a focus here. It's really interesting. Well, so, I suppose if you buy them because um, you think that they're healthy, but you don't really like them, that they might end up being wasted. So from that perspective, I can kind of understand it. But uh, yeah. Beet green chips with nigella and sesame seeds. Use your beet greens in this uh, in, in, with clementines. Like I don't. I mean, I I like beets. I don't have a lot of beet greens. Uh, like I don't, I don't. But I see. I see. Like I see what they're what they're trying to do. But I want to highlight some stuff um, in here. If you look at um, store it. Um, so. Uh, and it's hard because it's like a funny kind of website where it doesn't have really good URLs. Well, but if you want, it's a gorgeous website that looks not too functional. Like it looks like it's optimized yeah. maybe for uh, for handheld. Um, and and it looks it, like again, it looks gorgeous, but but maybe not so great for uh, like functionality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So click on um, I want a store and and pull down to meat and poultry. Yeah. And then scroll down to deli meats. Okay. All right. Um, so it tells you how, you know, should you refrigerate it? Yes. One's that is freshest three from in three to five days. But here's the part I want you to go over to the right side of the screen. It says, use it up revival. Deli meat can be eaten after the sell by date, but it's not a good idea to eat it cold after the use by date or best by date. If it's past that date and still smells and appears fine, cook it thoroughly before eating. I, I get, I get it. Don, right, don't like, get me wrong. right. So let's so let's break down uh, what what I would suggest is the science. Right, um, what they're saying is that listeria can be in deli meats, and listeria may increase over time, even in the refrigerator. Okay, um, and, and that 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 uh, date, that sell by date, uh, or the use by or best by date, may be indicative of listeria risk. They also don't want people to eat food that's spoiled because the other thing that can happen in deli meats is spoilage. And so if it, if it's, if it still smells and appears fine, that equals not spoiled, but because of listeria, cook it thoroughly. That's how I would read between the lines on that. Yeah. And what does cook it thoroughly mean until it's steaming hot or piping hot, right? Well, well, and here's the thing. Yeah. Well, we know, we know, right. Uh, we cook yeah. to 160, but how do you, how are you going to tempt deli meat then? Well, uh, I would use an infrared thermometer. Tom. Okay. Uh, no, but okay. Uh, yeah, like, or I would try to slide a, a tip-sensitive digital thermometer into a stack of it. I don't, you know, it's it's a it's a tough one. But I think you know, my my suggestion would be cook it until it's crispy like bacon. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> which that's, which again is is also not a temperature measurement, but I think uh, would probably result in uh, uh, reaching at least one hundred and sixty. Yeah. So kind of, I mean, interesting website. Um, I, um, I, I would have, and of course this is, you know, no one, no one's really asking me and no one has, has reached out, but we, you and I are constantly interviewed about spoilage and risk and pathogens. And, and I think there's way more food waste, um, about, uh, that pop, that comes about because of a lack of literacy of best before used by sell by dates. And I would have just wanted a whole campaign on that. Well, and so let me, as a way of uh, a follow-up, uh, let me also mention um, um, a um, 
uh, what's her name? Uh, a woman by the name of Dana Gunders. Uh, so Dana has a book out that we'll link to called The Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook. Uh, she reached out to me um, as a food safety expert because she wanted to, she, she's very passionate about this issue. Um, she she's a, a works at uh, NRDC and you know, and, and again, I've got a lot of things to say about NRDC that are not too charitable um, because I think that they do a lot of things that, that have the positions that I disagree with that are not necessarily science-based. This is one thing that they're doing that I think is, is pretty good. And I and I have I have worked with Dana uh, also. Um, she was involved with some folks that were making a documentary about food waste. Um, right. Uh, the, the, they've, they've been involved with this uh, group called uh, refed.org, uh, sorry, refed.com. Uh, refed is a collaboration of 50 businesses, nonprofit foundation, government leaders, and I guess throw in some academics because I think I was involved as well, um, to basically create the roadmap to reduce U.S. food waste. Um, they they are good. They have good intentions. I don't think that they ever got to exactly where they wanted to get to because it's difficult to buy to, to get buy-in from across the food industry, looking at all the different diverse products um, and to come up with, they really, what they wanted to do was to come up with safety-based date labeling. Um, and, and ultimately they were not able to do it. Uh, I think in part because they, they tried to move too fast and in part because it's a really hard problem. Otherwise we would have solved the problem already. It's not, uh, it is not hard. It is not easy to do. Right. Right, it's not it's not easy to do, and it, there isn't like a one size uh, fit, fits all. I, I do think that um, this is a place where where I do like uh, the foodsafety.gov messaging on use by dates, where it kind of um, goes down and and demystifies what those what those dates and, and labels mean. Um, it, you know, get, getting someone to to that information to actually employ it is is more you know difficult. Um, but that, I, I think they've done a much better job uh, on on those than than others have. So got that. So, so do you? So all right. So I'm on foodsafety.gov and I'm 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 searching for uh, use by dates. Is there a specific place you want to point people to? I will send you a link. Okay. On this um, food product, and actually, it takes them away from foodsafety.com or .gov, and it goes to uh, USDA FSIS. Okay. And it's a play, a page called Food Product Dating. Okay. Not it's a I mean it's the Tinder of uh, of the food world. <laughs> the show note or show title right there. All right. Um, hey, there's lots of people getting sick from a listeria in Australia from um, uh, cantaloupe rock melons. Oh, yeah, I saw this. Four deaths. 17. Who knew? Me- melons could give people listeria. I never would have imagined. <laughs> oh, wait. Yes, that's right. We, we had that problem in the United States already. Yeah, I, actually, um, I was at a meeting yesterday uh, here that our um, North Carolina Fresh Produce Safety Task Force put on for stakeholders in the fresh produce industry and fresh produce world. And um, Trevor Suslow was uh, uh, speaking at the meeting, and I, I spoke about some work that we've been doing at retail around cantaloupes. And um, I, I you know, described for some folks in the audience about Jensen Farms, about 
um, you know, Listeria in the packing facility on the pack line, wash water management being uh, problematic. And then this, you know, uh, knowledge that we have now that we didn't have or hadn't really focused on much before that outbreak that Listeria ha- you know, it has an ability to grow on and in that whole cantaloupe through the transport storage. And then again, once cut up in, in consumers, consumers homes. And so this, you know, Listeria is going to be there. Um, Listeria and, and melon, um, you know, I think it's a pretty good substrate for growth and you've got, um, it's a product that is, you know, not, not going to be really, really refrigerated and especially on, on display. And it's got a fairly long shelf life. Um, so it's, you know, not not a surprise to see this again. Well, and I guess the question that I have is, what were they doing um, at the Rumbola family farms? I mean, again, Jansen Farms, we know that they essentially were using a potato uh, washing equipment that they had retrofitted to work with uh, melons. And essentially, as as I heard the story told, basically built what I've, what I've been describing as a listeria inoculating machine. So because you don't want to bruise the melons, you use lots of padding, which absorbs moisture and promotes listeria growth. And then you make you, again, you basically you're stamping every single melon that comes out of that packing house uh, by by moving across that um, non-cleanable um, cushiony barrier, right? So uh, the question is, what are they? You know, what were they doing? How did this? How did this happen, right? Um, what what were they doing in the packing house or in the field that led to the problem? Yeah, and I don't yeah, think we exactly. know yet, right? No, no, I, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think we know at all, and and I hope you know. Uh, Doug's been really critical. You know, he's he's on the ground. He's our correspondent in in uh, in Brisbane, Australia. Um, he's been really critical uh, over the last few years about egg-related outbreaks um, in Australia, and just not getting a lot of clear information out out of the egg industry and the regulatory world. And and I hope that this isn't a situation where it's like, well, the story's over. We identified the farm. Um, and, and that's all, that's all we end up hearing publicly, uh, about how this investigation continues on. Cause I think one thing that Jensen farms really did, um, for the food safety world was show, um, in a, in a really great way, what that investigation looked like and, um, what FDA was looking for and, and the, uh, investigation follow-up documents that were that were published provide a lot of insight into into what you know what investigators saw when they got there, and so I hope that I hope we get a, a similar situation because um, that that's the only way that we that we move this stuff forward. Right. I mean, we have to learn. So something went wrong, right? And we have to learn what it was, and uh, and then we have to not do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if we if we still can't figure out what it was. Um, then we have to figure out why we don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. And well, and let's, and let's, yeah. And again, let's figure out what they were doing, right? Whether we, even if we don't find the definitive cause, like what, what were the, what were best practices that they were doing at Rumbola and what were the things that were less than best practices? Even if we can't pin it down, I just, I have to think that eventually with enough data over time, we'll figure stuff out. And so we have to know, we have to know what, what the, the, uh, Australian equivalent of FDA that comes in the, I guess it's the New South Wales Food Authority, right? Uh, what do, what do they learn uh, when they go into uh, into this uh, the packing house into the farm? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
Last thing that I had on my list that mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about was uh, what's your take on um, germs versus uh, pathogens as a, as a word as I, words to be used? I'm a man who likes to um, say things simply with as few characters as possible. And so I'm fine with germs. Um, I think pathogens is technically more correct. But germs gets the basic idea across. So I, you know, and, and this is something that we've we've gone back and forth uh, with my cooperative extension colleagues about whether we should say germs or pathogens. And I can, I could, I can, I could argue both sides. But if I had to pick the side that I would argue, I would argue that that germs that germs are okay. Um, uh, not <laughs> that germs are okay, but the, the use of the term oh, germs are probably okay. You know, a little, a little bit of germs yeah. can never hurt anybody. Um, but um, but yeah, I would say um, yeah, let's let's uh, let's call them germs. I don't know. It depends on the context. But but I'm not I'm not opposed to the term germs. Um, you know, off the off right off the bat. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And this is maybe my, uh, like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know where this, where this came from, but it was one of those things that got instilled in me somewhere along my, my career. So the, why, why we're having this conversation is I was at a science event, um, at my, my kid's school and there was a, you know, a book fair and they had some science books and, and one was on, um, germs. And I can't, I didn't take a picture of the, um, the cover. So I don't know what the title of the book was, but, uh, I, I turn, you know, flip through the pages and, um, one of the pages says at the top of it, how can I stop germs? And then, uh, so I circled that on what I tweeted out and then pointed to one of the options, which was become a scientist. Uh, and there were some, some other great options like don't tempt them, catch them, take the right medicine, wash your hands, brush your teeth. Um, you know, look, look after your pet. Um, but I remember somewhere sort of this thing being instilled in, into me that the germs was, you know, was this old term that just, just wasn't correct and was, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe confusing, but, but then, you know, in the, in the vernacular of, of how people discuss it, this is what people use akin to the 24 hour flu or, um, you know, I've, I've got the flu, you know, and, and it's giving me diarrhea where, you know, the, the flu comes from influenza, which is respiratory disease. Um, so I kind of pithily, uh, tweeted, I prefer the word pathogens and I do, I do prefer the word pathogens, but I can see, I can see your, like, I, I, I can see both, both sides here, right? Like, let's not create a word or use a word that might make the terms or the concepts that we want people to, to follow or to do inaccessible because the because it's the wrong word. Well, and I, I, I and I would never use the word germs in a scientific paper, right? Uh, no, I would, and I would difference. use I would use pathogens or I would name the specific pathogen. It all depends upon the context. Oh, good. All right. Um, we can we can agree on that one. Cool. Cool. Uh, I think that's a show. All right. So uh, there's there's another food safety talk we. We, we did it, Don, we, we did uh, over two hours of recording today between our two, uh, our two podcasts. Um, I'm still hungry. I'm going to go get some barbecue. Uh, and, uh, anyway, that's it. So, uh, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Cool. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, thank you for that, uh, putting that uh, hand dryer message in the, uh, in the Dropbox. I appreciate that. You're welcome. I'm put, just putting the links into sh- I don't remember what order we talked about it, but I will, um, I will put, uh, I will put uh, them into the show notes in approximately the right location. Cool. Well, I had a lot of links open today. Yeah, me too. That was good. We, I think we hit all the feedback. We talked for a long time on feedback, but, but I think it was good. And I think, you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel bad if people email us and, and give us feedback and we can't talk about it. So Yeah, no, exactly. And we, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, and we hit a bunch of stuff that we did, uh, yeah, that we wanted. So, yep. oh, IAFP abstracts are just rolling in. Are you, are you, I've got. You still there? Yeah. I mean, hello. Can you hear me? Oh, still there? Hello? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I'm here. Sorry. I'm here. Are you, am I, can you, can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Good. No. So I've got like a whole bunch of, uh, um, uh, all my, you know, we put in a bunch of abstracts and now all the notifications are coming in. Oh, for IFP? IFP. Yeah. Cool. I, one, one was, uh, one didn't make it. Oh no. It's all right. I think it's because we we have a whole bunch of them together, and there were nine hundred submissions. Wow, that's insane. Um, cool. So this one is yours, Indeed. I believe it is. is that correct? Yes, I think I sent you all the links. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to tell you. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> uh, good. Uh, let's let's schedule the next one. Okay. So, two weeks from today I, for me is wide open. I could do. Um, I'm, I'm. I'm. I got a class that I'm teaching teaching at twelve fifteen. What if we did? What if we did ten till twelve? Sure. Let's do that. On March 29th. Yep. Perfect. 149. Wow. Oh, it's almost our sesquicentennial. Almost. I, I don't know. I think so. We should have to look that, that up. One's, um, it's one of the, we, it's, uh, we might have already done that one. All <laughs> right. So 10 to 12, and that'll give me 15 minutes to get to the panel. I don't have to prepare anything. So that's good. Cool. Um, and... What else was I going to tell you? Um, okay, so you got that. All right, I think that's it. All right. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>